We're spending our summer in the book of James, and so turn with me there, James chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 1072. Uh, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that the book of James can be a real bruiser. Uh, it can beat you up on every turn. In fact, if you uh, honestly study the book of James, you can't help but come away with a sober realization of just how far we still need to go. Uh, to live lives that perfectly honor and glorify uh, the Lord. Uh, an honest study of the book of James will always bring humility. It will humble us. And that's a good thing, right? It's good from time to time that we get our toes stepped on and we get corrected in our Christian walk. Uh, the book of James has such clarity when it explains to us how we live out the Christian faith and when we hold that that clear presentation of the how-tos of the faith up next to our lives and we see that there are discrepancies, that's a good thing. It gives us something to work on. It gives us a humble attitude, something to pray about. And so it's a very good thing that the book of James sort of beats us up from time to time. But there, there is a danger or at least a potential danger in this. If we're not careful when we study the book of James, if we're not careful to connect it with the rest of the New Testament, we can come away with a, with a wrong impression. We can come away thinking that the most important message that God has for his children is simply for us to do better and try harder. For us to do better and try harder. Now, certainly, we need to do better and, and we need to try harder. But if you're a student of the Bible, you know that that's not the full message. That's not the full gospel of Jesus Christ. There's more to the story than that. Aren't you thankful that there's more to the story than just do better and try harder? If all it was was do better, try harder, then Jesus would not have needed to come, right? We could have just done better and tried harder. If that's, if that's all there was to the message, then Jesus would not have needed to have sent to us the Holy Spirit to live within us and empower us. No, the truth is that while God has made clear, and James is a, a great example of this, God has made clear to us what his expectations are, and we're to be obedient to that. At the same time, God has provided not only the instructions, but the motivation and the power to follow those instructions. It's not just do this and he leaves us alone, but he says, do this and then I'm going to work in you and through you to accomplish my purpose. The Bible says that God is forming the character of Christ in me. And so there is an alliance between me and God. As, as his child, there is, there is a connection between me and God that not only does he give me the direction, but he gives me the power and we need to be uh, we need to know that and we need to be thankful for that and that changes really the tenor of some of the things that we read in in the book of James we must understand that there's hope above just do your best and try harder and so when we come to James chapter 3 I think we've we come to a perfect place to, to see this. All the way through the book of James, we've seen this moral instruction, and we're going to see it again in James chapter 3, and then over the next few weeks in chapters 4 and 5. But, but it's, it's communicated to us a little differently in James chapter 3, which I, I think gives us an opportunity to see the connection between the moral instruction and 
the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, how God works through us to accomplish his purposes. And so I want to read a lot of verses this morning. James chapter 3, we, we won't stand, this is a lot to read, but I want to read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Can we do that? Look with me. He says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. And so he says, as you teach, God's going to hold you accountable for the things that you teach, that you not only teach them with words, but you demonstrate them with your life. Verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature able also to control the whole body. So here he tells us that what we say, the expressions of our mouth are an indicator of the, of the spiritual maturity of our entire body. If a man is able to control his tongue, then that's a, that's a sign that God is in control of the rest of his body. If, if he is not able to control his tongue, then God's not in control probably of any other part of his life uh, either. Look at verse three. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how small a fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a, a world of unrighteousness is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness, Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour forth sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. Now, trick question. What does this passage tell us that we are to do? Do you know? What does this passage tell us we are to do? Now, it's a trick question because actually, and this is different, a little different flavor than anything else we've read in the book of James so far, this passage doesn't tell us to do anything. If you go back through this passage, you'll notice that there are no commands in this passage. There's a sort of command in verse five, it says to consider something, that means to know about something, but really an action command, there are no commands in this passage. It doesn't tell us to do anything. Now, there may be some, some commands implied here, but, but this, is, this is 12 verses in a row, it, and it sort of stands out from the rest of the book of James because we have a do this, do this, do this, and then we get to chapter three, and he tells us about the tongue, the evil of the tongue, the potential of the tongue for evil, but he doesn't give us a command here in the first 12 verses of James chapter three. So wh why, why is that? Why is that? Well, look back at verses seven and eight because I think this is the key to the whole section. Verse seven says again, every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. You know what that is? Because you've got a pet, right? And you get your dog to do something or your cat to do something or your guinea pig or your snake or whatever kind of pet you have at your house. Uh, 
me and uh, me and Ray, my youngest daughter, we were uh, at the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago, and we saw an incredible dolphin show. And the things that they were able to train those dolphins to do, I just wish that somehow I could train my kids to <laughs> behave in the same ways. It was just it was just amazing. So we we have we have been able to tame animals. We've been able to tame beasts. But look what it says in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So what does he say about the tongue? He doesn't say, do better, try harder, does he? He, he, he says, in fact, the opposite of that. He, he says, no one can tame the tongue. He, he says the problem is not that you're you're not committed to do, do better, try harder. He says it's impossible to tame the tongue. He also doesn't just say shame on you. There's no shame on us as children of God. Jesus has taken away our shame. There's no condemnation, the Bible says, for those who believe. So this isn't a shame on you. It's also not a, a, a let go, let God kind of approach. You hear people say that sometimes, let go, let God. The Bible never says let go, let God. That, that is not a teaching of scripture. No, we, we've got to be active in our Christian walk. In fact, Romans 6, 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. We can't just sit back passively and just let happen what happens. So, so what, what is he saying here? I think he's communicating this. That when it comes to the tongue, this isn't a fight that we fight. This is a surrender that we declare. Now, this is so important. It may be subtle, but I want you to pay close attention to this because this will help us not just have a different tongue in our mouths, but this will help us in every struggle that we ever face with temptation. It's not a fight that we fight. It is a surrender that we declare. What he tells us here is that we cannot, we do not have it in us to tame the tongue. This is not a do better, try harder. You can't do it. But it ought to change. And the key to the change is that we surrender to the work of Christ in our lives. It's not something that we do, it's something that Christ does in us. And as long as our approach is do better, try harder, we're going to fail. But when we can switch to, from fighting the fight to, to declaring the surrender, then Christ can succeed forming the character of Christ in us. Let me explain it this way. In my heart, or in my life, there's a battle. I have a wicked heart, and you do too. My heart can't overcome my tongue. My heart can't overcome lust. My heart can't overcome greediness. My heart can't overcome selfishness. I have a sinful, wicked heart. But I, as a child of God, have something else. I have a new nature born of Christ. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I have the, 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 the strength of Christ coursing through my veins. And so there's a battle, though. There's a battle. And, 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 and in my life, I, I, I'm either going to... I'm either going to let my heart reign or I'm going to let Christ reign in my life. And 
in order to live a life that's pleasing to God, this is not a matter of fighting with my heart as much as it is a matter of surrendering my life to Christ. In fact, let me let you hear, hear it how the apostle Paul explains it. And, and so maybe that makes you nervous when your pastor says that he has a rotten heart. Uh, but listen to the apostle Paul. Paul got to write most of the New Testament or half the New Testament. Listen to the, how he described the struggle in his, in his life. Romans seven nineteen. he says, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. He says, I want to do good. He really, his want to worked. But he says, I find myself doing things contrary to what I want to do. He said, there's a battle going on inside me. He goes on to say, verse 22, for in my inner self, I delight in God's law. He says, I delight in God's law. Do you delight in God's law? I know I do. He says, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in my parts, in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin. And then he goes on to say, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You see, within each of us, there's, there is still remaining this sinful nature. But there is also the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And, and what it means to, to be obedient to the commands and the instructions that we, that we learn in the book of James is not so much do better, try harder, as it is I surrender to the power of Christ in my life. And so we, we see this here in, in James chapter three so clearly, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to, to connect all of the book of James with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we, we see this specifically here in verses seven and eight when, it says, when he says it is impossible for us to control the tongue, yet it needs to be controlled. And so let, let me go through this passage and show you how to surrender your tongue to Christ, your lips to Christ, your words to Christ. And as we learn how to surrender our words to Christ, really what we're learning is how to surrender every part of our lives to Christ. See, the, the message I'm going to preach to you is going to be focused on the tongue because that's what James focuses on here in James chapter three, but, but we can preach the same message about lust. We can preach the same message about selfishness. We can preach the same message about everything, every sin, every temptation, because with everything, it is impossible for our sinful heart to defeat it. But if we will surrender to the work of Christ, we can have victory in our lives. So let me show you how to do this with our tongues. Number one, if we're going to control the tongue, if we're going to surrender the tongue, number one, we must recognize the danger. We must recognize the danger with the tongue. In these 12 verses, uh, James gives nine analogies for the tongue. And if you're just curious about this, it would be a great way to go home and study James chapter three. See if you can find the nine analogies for the tongue, the nine illustrations for the tongue in the first 12 verses. And just ask yourself, what's the purpose of this one? What's the purpose of that one? Great way to study uh, James chapter three. So nine illustrations in just a dozen verses. And four of those nine really have the same meaning. And the meaning is this, that our tongue, our words have an outsized influence. 
that, that our words can, call, can cause great destruction if we're not careful. Let's look at a few of those. He, he says, our tongue is like a bit in the mouth of a horse. And, and so a horse can weigh a thousand pounds. I'm told that some horses, a very large horse could weigh 2000 pounds. And so horses are big and strong, but a horse can be controlled by a little bit that you put in the mouth of the horse and let that bit be influenced by an expert at horses, a horseman, and, and he can control the direction and speed of that horse. It's amazing that that big old strong horse can be controlled by that little bit. That bit has outsized influence over that horse. And our words can have outsized influence in our lives and the lives of others. Uh, we, we've all taught our children that rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones. You know the rest of it? But words will what? All right, don't say you've never lied in church. You just did. Because we all know that that's not true, right? We've all been hurt by words. You ever been hurt by words? You ever had somebody say something that was not true? Or maybe they said something that was true, but they didn't have any business saying it. And it wounded you. Do you know people? Are there people, let's just be honest, are there people that aren't here in our church today because they've been hurt by Words, words can have such, they, they seem so insignificant, but they can have such impact and influence in people's lives. I tell you, one of the things I've been praying for the, for the last few days, our, our youth are gone to uh, youth camp, uh, 85 youth, almost 100 people there all total, I think. And uh, my understanding is everything's going well. They're having a great time. And I hope you're praying for them. A lot of spiritual decisions will be made. I, I came to know Christ at a youth camp. I I um, accepted the call of ministry, or at least the beginning of my accepting the call in the ministry at a, at a college camp, but it was like a youth camp. And, and so as, as a youth minister, though, many, many years ago, here's something that I would see happen over and over, and this is what I've been praying about. Young people will go away, and God will speak to them, and God will move in their lives, and they will come home with some excitement and some enthusiasm about what God, what God is doing. And oftentimes, their parents will just douse that with water. Their parents will say, well, you've made decisions before, or well, you need to give this some time before you realize, before you make any life decisions, or I figured something crazy like that would happen if I sent you to youth camp. And, and parents without meaning it will just destroy, just quench the work of the spirit in those young people's lives. I'm, I'm praying that we will watch our words when our youth return to our homes. I have a youth that's there. That's, I'm praying for me first that I will, I will be an encouragement, not a discouragement for whatever God chooses to do in my daughter's life as she is uh, at, this, uh, at this youth camp. But we use our words to cause all kinds of problems. We say things that aren't true. We say things that are true but shouldn't be said. And it breaks people's heart. It hurts people. It crushes people. It ruins people's reputation. Uh, it, it, it changes the course of our, our spouse's life or our children's lives. It, it can impact the church. It can impact the church if we're not careful. And so we see that there can be great, uh, great power in words. And that's the point of the illustration of the, of the bit in the mouth of the horse. You know, you know, you should know that that's positive and negative. I mean, we're focused here on the negative and really that's the focus of, of James chapter three, but, but also our words can, can, can have great positive effect in people's lives. When I think about just the, the course of my life, uh, there were there have been three people who have shared a word with me 
And there have been a lot of people who have influenced me uh, in, in a positive way. But there, there have been three people that have shared a word with me that has, that has really, I, I, looking back, it just completely changed the course of my life. Uh, one was uh, Mrs. Emery in the seventh grade. I don't even know her first name. I don't know what happened to her. I don't know if she's still with us or not. But seventh grade, I mean, that was like 600 years ago. But uh, she pulled me aside after class and she told me something. And it became a hinge point in my life. I will never forget uh, what she said. And then uh, a few years later, a youth pastor sets up to me, Donald Edwards. Uh, he's still a youth pastor today, uh, probably the oldest youth pastor in America. I don't know if he's listening to this message or not, but, uh, but he, he, he encouraged me in a difficult time, and it, it became a hinge point in my life. And then not very many years ago, a friend and a church uh, consultant minister, uh, Rich Halcomb, shared something with me, made an impact in my but, so, so I'm saying that our, our words can have outsized influence. They can cause great damage or, or great good. He uses the illustration of a rudder and a, and a ship uh, because uh, a great ship can be directed by a small rudder. The same, uh, same meaning, same message. He talks about uh, the tongue is like a fire. I think that's interesting, but there are two reasons why a fire, I, I, that comparison I think is especially interesting, is, is one, the damage of a fire can't be undone easily. Do you know that? If you've burned yourself, if you've ever been severely burned, you know that the scars never leave, right? I've been burned once and, and I still have the scars from that. If you have, a, if you have a, a painting or something and it has been burned, you can't restore that that burnt, the burnt part of that painting, it, it's a permanent damage. To burn something is to damage it permanently. And, and our words can, can burn into people's lives. I've, I've counseled with people who, who will talk about how decades ago they were wounded with somebody's words and, they, and it's still a pain point in, in their lives. Uh, but the second thing about fire is that fire spreads and he, he mentions this right, right here in James 3. He, he talks about how a small, small spark can set a whole forest on fire. And so if you go and you're careless with fire in the, in the forest and, and you create a fire that's just about that small, I mean, it's just a small fire, but that fire, because of the nature of fire, it spreads and it burns down 10,000 acres of trees and 100 homes even though the fire you only directly created was this big, you're responsible for all of that. Now you may say something and you may think its impact is small, but, if, but, the, but the thing about saying things we shouldn't say is that it spreads. And you're not just responsible for the direct impact of what you say, but the spreading impact of what of what you say. We're, we're, we're understanding that the first thing we've got to do to surrender the tongue is to understand it's, uh, it's, it's danger. It's danger. It, it's interesting that James speaks about the tongue in every single chapter of this book. This is, the, this is the only subject he speaks on every single chapter. That ought to tell us something. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at James chapter 1, verse 26. This is a strong statement. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Jesus had very strong words about the tongue on multiple occasions. In Matthew 12, 36, he says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word that they speak. And so if we're going to surrender the tongue, the first thing we've got to do is to recognize its danger. 
The second thing we need to do is to reveal its tendency. To reveal its tendency. Now, it, it's interesting with the tongue, it is easy for us to see the sins of others. It is difficult, though, for us to see our own sins. Most of you are thinking right now, this is a really good message for everybody else. But nobody thinks that they are guilty of the sins of the tongue. Because when I hear somebody else talk and they're complaining or they're criticizing or, or, or they're saying things they don't have any business saying, I can see that. It just stands out to me. And I think, why is that person saying what they're saying? But when I criticize, it's because, well, I'm justified in it. God has given me some insight into how things ought to be. And I should express that. I am, I am a mouthpiece for the Lord. And so I justify my criticism. When I complain about something going on in my life, well, I mean, that's different than when you complain because people ought to know that I've been mistreated or, or, or things aren't fair for me. And when I tell a story about something I shouldn't be talking about, it's easy for me to justify for me. And so we have to be especially careful with the tongue. We need to give our words a test. So let me just give you a brief four-part test you can give to your words to reveal that you and I both have the tendency to say things we ought not say. So question number one in this test, will these words reflect an attitude that seeks to put others first? Will the words that I'm saying reflect an attitude, reflect a heart that says, I think others are more important than myself? You know, the Bible does say in Philippians 2, 3 that we should Pardon me, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than ourselves. And so when you're complaining that somebody was uh, uh, rude to you or that somebody cut you off or that somebody uh, drove too fast or somebody did whatever, whatever you're complaining about or you're, you're critical of somebody, that, that oftentimes what you're really saying is that you have your preferences and your preferences are more important than their preferences. Your agenda is more important than their agenda. Your schedule is more important than their schedule. Oftentimes our words betray a heart of selfishness and we ought to, we ought to give our words that test. Are the things that I'm saying as I'm about to tell a story of what happened or I'm about to tell something that I know, is, is, does this reflect that I think I am the center of the universe or that I think I am here as a servant for other people? That's, that's test number one. T test number two is this. Will these words glorify God? The words that you're going to say, I'm here, my, my only purpose here is to glorify God, are the words I'm about to say, will they bring glory to God? Could I say at the end of my story, may God receive the glory? Well, if you can't, then you shouldn't say those words. Uh, question number three, test number three, will these words bless other people? Uh, you know, too many times we, we measure we judge our words by whether or not we think they're true. But that's not really the judgment of Scripture. Certainly we shouldn't say them if they're not true. But beyond that, just because they're true doesn't mean they need to be repeated. Will my repeating of these words bring blessing to the person's life to whom I'm speaking, of whom I'm speaking? Well, in church, we're in church, so let me talk to you about church. We have come up with a clever way to cover over and justify our words. And you know what this is, even before I say it, right? We call it prayer request. 
I want to share with you what happened because I want you to pray. Well, let me just, let's just have a new rule at First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches, okay? If you know of a prayer request, first, pray about it, right? I think sometimes we share more prayer requests with each other than we share with the Lord in heaven, okay? I don't mind you coming to me and saying, will you pray? Yes, but pray first, okay? And then if you get around to it, come to me and ask me to pray and I'll be glad to pray. But, but too many times we're asking people to pray more than we are actually praying. What if when we get to heaven, there's this big scoreboard that lists how many times we prayed versus how many times we asked somebody to pray. I'm afraid that would be an embarrassing scoreboard for many people. But here's the second part of our new rule. If it's about somebody's failure, somebody failed in something, maybe it's sin, maybe it's just a failure in life, let's just don't tell anybody. Let's just pray. There is almost never a reason for me to go and share with somebody else about somebody's failure so that they can pray. Now, if somebody's been in a car accident or somebody's sick or something, yes, we ought to pray. But if somebody's having trouble in their marriage, you don't need to go tell somebody so that they can pray. You just pray. God knows you know. You know. God knows you know. So you pray. Okay? And if they find out some way, then they'll pray. But they don't need to find out from you. Your responsibility is not to spread the news. Your responsibility is to pray. And so we ought to, we ought to give our words this test. Will what I am saying be a blessing to the person that I'm referring to? And then the last test is this. Are these words best spoken to others or to the Lord? Too many times we have criticism uh, with our boss, with our family, with our spouse, with our church, with our, uh, with our neighborhood people. And, and, and we, we have a complaint, but we share our complaint not with the people who could do something about it, but we just share our complaint. If the person you're telling can't fix it, then don't tell them. Tell it to God who has control of all things. See, the, our tongue is more wicked, I think, than we know. And so we need to give it a test. We need to be intentional about this. We need to recognize the danger of the tongue, but we also need to recognize our tendency to be guilty of this sin. And then the third thing, if, if we're going to, to, to truly surrender our tongue to the Lord, the third thing is the most important. We need to make our tongue a battleground for sanctification. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sanctification is a fancy religious word, it's a biblical word, uh, but it refers to a, a part of our salvation. So the Bible talks about our salvation in the past tense, if you know Christ, there was a time at which you put your trust in Jesus, right? And so I, I put my trust in Jesus, for me it was 1985. I put my trust in Jesus, Jesus saved my soul. Uh, that, that's something that happened in the past, it happened at a moment in time. If there has not been a moment in time when you put your trust in Jesus, then that moment in time needs to be now. I, I get so discouraged and so frustrated when I talk to people about their, their, their relationship with Christ and, and, and they share a story like this. Well, I've just sort of always been saved. Uh, or I've just, you know, several years ago I had a difficulty in my life so I started coming to church and, you know, I've just sort of fallen in love with church stuff over the last few years. Well, good, good that you've fallen in love. But, but salvation is something that happens at a moment in time. 
That's why the Bible talks about salvation as being born again. If I were to ask the moms here, when were your children born? You, you wouldn't say, well, you know, it, it's like a five-year process. No, it happened just like that, right? I mean, maybe not just like that, but, but, uh, but, but they weren't there and then they were there. So, so the Bible talks about my salvation as something that happened at a, at a moment in time. And then future tense, the Bible talks about my salvation as something that will happen. One day I will be fully and completely saved. I told you about this, this battle that's going on inside me and inside you. But one day that battle is going to be over because I'm going to be made in character like Christ. And I look forward to that. When I see him face to face, that'll change. That'll change. So that's my future salvation. But the Bible talks about an in-between time. And the Bible word for that is sanctification. And it's, it's that period when God is working on us to form the character of Christ in us, to, uh, to, 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 to make us more and more into the image of God. That's happening day by day as I mature and as you, as you mature. So what, what I think James chapter 3 is telling us is that we need to make the tongue the battleground for this work of, of growing more Christ-like. We need to make the tongue the battleground for how we, we become more and more God-honoring in the way that, ways that we live. Now, let, let me just show this to you in, in, in some other places in Scripture. The importance of working toward being more Christ-like. 1 Peter 1.15, as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. That's our command, to, to become more holy, to become more righteous. Philippians 2.12, friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now work out your salvation. You see there at the end of the verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means to work on this, to become more Christ-like. 1 Corinthians 9.26 and 27, Paul says, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself might not be disqualified. See, we're in a battle to become more Christ-like. And the tongue, and this is why Jesus mentions this over and over and over. This is why James mentions this in every single chapter in this letter. The tongue is a battleground that we, that we do that. So how do we sanctify our tongues? How do we fight this battle? Let me give you three quick things. This is most important. First of all, we need to seek forgiveness early and often. If we're in this struggle, if we're in this struggle, and we ought to be in this struggle every day to, to surrender our tongues to, to, the, to the influence of Christ, we ought to be talking to God about it every day. Every morning in your, in your time with the Lord, you ought to be saying, God, how have I done the last 24 hours? What, what careless words have I said? When have I been complaining or criticizing? When have, when have I been discouraging to people? We ought to have a conversation every day. This is a battleground. Every day, you ought to be having a conversation with the Lord about, about, about your tongue. You ought to be confessing. God, I said something yesterday I shouldn't have said. I, I, I should have kept my mouth closed. I should have made that criticism into some encouraging words. See, if you're, if you're AWOL, in this battle, you're losing the battle. If, if you're not praying every day, Lord, protect my tongue. Lord, give me wisdom about how I'm using my speech. If you're not in the battle every day, then you're losing the battle. 
you're losing the battle. And so we need to seek forgiveness early and often. We need to have an ongoing conversation with God about our tongue. Number two, or letter B, you need to use your tongue to bless the Lord. So we need to train our tongue in righteousness. If you look back at verse nine, he says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father. So if, if your tongue is gonna be under control, under the control of the spirit, you, you need to practice. You, you, need to, you need to wake up in the morning and use your tongue to worship the Father and train your tongue that that's its purpose, right? The purpose of my tongue, the purpose of my lips, my words is to, is to honor God. And, and so if I want God to have control, then I need to intentionally train my, my voice to do that. L listen just as a sample of verses that remind us of how important our words are in worship. Uh, Psalm 47, six and seven says, sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise to our king, sing praise, sing a song of wisdom for God is king of the whole earth. Now what does that say? Sing with your lips, sing. Psalm 100 verse one, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. How do we shout? With our, with our lips. Psalm 150 verse six, let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that the way we come to know Christ is by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And then Jesus said in Luke 19 40, I tell you, if you keep silent, the stones will cry out. See, God has has created our voice to bring him honor. And, and, and one of the best ways you can you can sanctify your tongue is keep a short account with God. Be talking to God about this. How am I doing? How am I doing? Forgive me. Help me. But then you need to every day train your voice uh, to, uh, to honor God. Uh, I don't have time to talk about this much. I talked about this with the staff a few weeks ago. One of the changes that God is making in my prayer life is that my prayers had mostly, until recently, mostly been silent prayers. Uh, I, I read my scripture and, 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 I, and I do my quiet time thing. Everybody does something a little different. But then when I would start my prayer time, it was silent. And I, would, I was praying, but I was praying in my heart. Now, God can hear the prayers of your heart as well as he can hear prayers any other way. But I don't know, and maybe I'm not as holy as you are, but what would happen sometimes is I get distracted. Any of you ever been distracted in your prayers? And I, I would start praying, and a few minutes into it, I'd be thinking about the football game coming up this weekend or something. And and, and, and I've, I've always felt bad that, I've, that I would struggle with that. But you know what, what God has taught me to do? And this, I can't give you a verse for this, but you can't give me a verse that says the other way, so I'm going to win uh, our, our, our little debate if you want to have a debate. But I've started, instead of praying silently, I just pray aloud. The Bible talks about being in a prayer closet. Why don't you go in a closet so everybody won't hear you? I don't want you to hear me. But, but it's talking about praying aloud. You don't find anybody in the Bible bowing their head, closing their eyes, and praying silently. That's like an American thing, right? That's, that's like a Texas thing or something. I mean, it's good, but it's not, there's no Bible verse that says we have to do that. What, what I'm saying is if, if we're going to surrender our tongue to the Lord, we've got to be in daily communication with him about this. And we need to start saying some things with our tongue that we know are right. And I've started praying aloud, praising God aloud. And what a difference it's making. Now, the third part of making it a battleground for sanctification is we must keep the tongue connected 
to the spirit of Christ. Now, please listen. This is, I've struggled with how to explain this, but it is key to the whole thing. It, it, it talks in James right, right there at the end of the passage we read about how we have both a bitter saltwater spring in us and we have a freshwater spring. And, and that's talking about this wicked heart that's in me and then there's this Holy Spirit controlled nature that God has given to me. Now, every time I speak, my tongue is either connected to the bitter spring of my wicked heart or to the fresh spring of the Holy Spirit. And so, so this gets back to why the, the tongue is untamable by me. I, I'm, not, I'm never gonna get to the point where, where, where I am in so, such control of my wicked heart that, that, that I would never speak something I shouldn't speak. What I need to do is quit fighting the fight and I need to declare the surrender. I need to connect my tongue with the spirit part of who I am. Who is in control of what I'm about to say? Is this come from me and my selfish, complaining, griping, critical heart? Or am I going to let the Holy Spirit control what I'm going to say? And, and, and this is so biblical. Romans 6, 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body and so that you obey its desires. And that's easy to understand. Don't let sin be master. But instead do this. It says in verse 13, do not offer any parts of it, any parts of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. What it says is, that you can either offer your body to sin, I can say that my, my foolish heart's gonna be in control of my tongue, or I can offer my tongue to God and say, God, I want you to be in control of my tongue. See the same thing in Colossians 3. I'm gonna read those verses, but I would encourage you to read Colossians chapter 3. But, but, but let me explain it this way. I thought about this just this morning, so it's, I printed out as a, as a separate little thing I was gonna read to you. I, I remember this just vaguely when it happened. It was 1983, uh, but I was, uh, it's something that happened on a military base near where I lived. I was later a minister of evangelism on this base. And so that's really the memory I have of this. Several years later, I ministered to some people who were a part of this tragedy that happened. So I looked it up online this morning, found a newspaper article about it. Let me just read it to you, a part of it, and then I'll explain some. It's Fort McClellan, Alabama. Uh, military base, former military base in Alabama. And so this was in 1983, May 28th. A tank, it was in their hospital. It was a hospital there. I've been, to, I've been in this very room where, this, where these people died. It says a tank resembling an oxygen container, but faintly labeled argon, a gas used in welding, was examined by investigators today after the deaths of two patients who breathed the gas at the Army hospital here. Military officials confirmed earlier today that two patients died and a third lapsed into a coma Wednesday because the argon tank was connected to the main oxygen supply at the hospital. It goes on to say it is apparent that, this is a quote from uh, one of the doctors, it is apparent that we were supplied argon in place of oxygen in a tank normally used for oxygen. Subsequent administration of argon to the patients resulted in suffocation. It was an odorless gas. Now, um, that's a terrible, terrible tragedy. But what happened is that you know, these patients are breathing this medical air, this medical gas that had been provided for their, that they needed to, to live. And that gas could have been connected to an oxygen tank 
or an argon tank. And out of that oxygen tank came life, right? That oxygen tank supplied life to those people. But instead of connecting that line to the oxygen tank, they connected it to the argon tank, which supplied death. And they didn't smell it, it didn't feel different, it didn't sound different, but it brought death. Now my tongue, it can either be connected to the, to the life-giving Holy Spirit. I can decide that today at lunch, when I talk to whoever I talk to, my tongue's gonna be connected to the Spirit and in control of the Spirit, or I can connect it to, the, to my heart, to the argon tank of my heart, and it could spew out death. See, if we're gonna, if we're gonna surrender our tongues this isn't just a matter of do better, try harder. This is about saying, my tongue, I surrender its control to the Spirit. Now, let me close like this. If you go back, and, and I'll just read it to you, you don't have to look, but back in verses 7 and 8 that we read a moment ago, the heart of this passage, every animal has been tamed, but nobody can tame the heart. Listen, that's true of every part of life. You can't please God by doing better, trying harder. You can't please God by coming to church. You can't please God by being baptized. You can't please God by giving money. You can't please God by, by doing better and trying harder. Now, as important as that is, we need to do better, try harder, come to church, give money, all those things. But there has to be a time in our life when we recognize that we are rotten to the core and that our only hope is not to fix us, but it's to surrender us. And I'll tell you, that the, I'll tell you the fear that every pastor has in his heart. And, and this, isn't, uh, this isn't preacher rhetoric. This is real fear is that I would preach week in and week out, especially through the book of James, and that people would decide that they needed to fix themselves instead of surrendering to Jesus. You can't fix you. If you could, Jesus wouldn't have come. Your only hope is to surrender. And in this chapter, we see this with the tongue. And I want you to learn that lesson. But I want you to learn the greater lesson with our entire lives. If there's never been a time in your life when you have surrendered to Jesus, Jesus, I know you've died on the cross for me and that's my only hope. I haven't deserved salvation and I never will. I need you. I surrender to you. If you've never done that, that's where it must begin. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment. Father in heaven, I, I pray that we do surrender our tongues to you. Uh, such an important command, uh, such an important instruction mentioned every single chapter in this letter of James, so important. I pray though today also that people will surrender their hearts to you, their lives to you. Don't let us leave here and make a commitment to do better and try harder. 
Let us today surrender to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If you need to make a decision, we encourage you to come down there. People here love to talk to you this morning. Let's sing together.